hey, marriage statistically is very important part of our society. In fact, 90% of Americans will be married by the time that they're 50 years old. 90%, that is 297 million people as it stands right now. So clearly, marriage is still a desirable goal for most of us. And I love that. I think it's absolutely great. So many people agree we want to get married. But how we view marriage, unfortunately, is not the same. And there's no greater way to see our difference in how we view marriage as looking at a different rate, and it's the divorce rate. In fact, divorce is always a painful experience that has impacts beyond the couple themselves. And I know that many of you guys in the room have been maybe either in a divorce or experienced divorce as a part of your family or friends. It's something that we've all experienced. In fact, 50% of marriages in the United States end in divorce. Add to that that subsequent marriages increase by 10% each time, it's a common thing. Okay, now I want to tell you, as always, my goal, and throughout this whole series, it'll continue to be the same. My goal is not to bring shame upon you. Okay, where you are is where you are. Not here to bring shame. What I want to do is to point out the facts. And pointing out these facts is not mean. It actually can be loving and helpful. And so this morning, we're going to kick that off and start talking about it. But before we do, we're going to talk about why does divorce happen? Why is it such a problem? Well, if you uh, look online, the United States Census Bureau, uh, when they surveyed why this happens, they found that there's top three reasons. Okay, here are the top three reasons. 43% of divorces end because of incompatibility. We're not, we're not compatible. I don't know when you discovered that, but they discovered it somewhere along the way. They're not compatible anymore. 28% it's infidelity. And 22% is money issues. What does that mean? If that's over 90% in for those three reasons, what does that tell us? It tells us that most of us are not coming into marriage for the same thing. We don't see the marriage or see marriage the same way. And this matters for us today because many of you are married, okay? 90% of you will be married by the time you're 50. And in the long run, whether you get married or not, we're a family. And uh, there are people in our family who are married. And we need to look at God's word and say, what is it that it tells us about marriage? So today, we're going to be kicking off this three-week uh, look at marriage today. What is it? What is marriage? Next week, we're going to look at divorce. Are there any exceptions? And then... After that, we're going to talk about remarriage and reconciliation, okay? Um, a friend of mine sent me a message this past week, and he said, man, I can see the emails coming. And, uh, and he said, it's kind of like jumping into a, a swimming with sharks. And I said, it's like bathing yourselves in blood and then jumping in to swim with sharks. And uh, I said I wasn't scared, but that's a lie. I prayed a lot. So we're going to be diving in. Now, here's the great thing about this morning when looking at marriage. I know that in three weeks, we can, we can talk through these things. Now, we really could spend a year talking about marriage. We're not going to be talking about um, all the tips and tricks of better communication and, uh, you know, physical intimacy and all. The, we're not talking about those. We're going to look at what is marriage, okay? And we're going to take a look at it. And we're going to look at marriage this morning through five uh, different terms, all right? If you're a journaler or you're a note taker, this might be a really helpful thing. So first we're going to look at distinction. Then we're going to look at discovery, delivery, definition, and lastly, we'll look at downfall. Okay, let me say those again. It's going to be distinction, discovery, delivery, definition, and downfall. You don't know what those mean, but I'm about to explain them to you, okay? So first, let's look at distinction. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 2. 
If you have your Bible open, um, it's at the very beginning, and uh, we're going to be at verse 18. I would love it if you follow along so you know that I'm reading God's Word and not making it up. This is what it says. It says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. You know, sometimes we hear people say that, you know, where would this world be if it wasn't for women, right? And what are they implying? That it would not be a good place, right? Do women, do you agree? Any men agree? Yes, we do. Okay, good. Uh, We agree, right? And it turns out that God's word also agrees. And because God says it right here, it is very clear. It is not good for man to be alone. But don't get carried away, ladies, gentlemen. It's also not good for a woman to be alone, right? Uh, And this seems to be a silly point to make, but in our culture, let me say this, in our culture, there is a war going on between male and female genders, right? It's raging. It's a complex battle that is a result of misunderstanding the way that God has designed men and women to function and to relate to one another. And it's become even more complex now because of gender reassignment, gender fluidity, and that which has graduated from just obscure and on the peripheral conversations to mainstream topic of debate. And it's made it even more confusing. But my goal this morning, like I said, is not to parse through every aspect of this cultural moment that we are living in in regards to gender and marriage. What is far more simple, far simpler, and far more effective to show you how the Bible defines marriage. What it, put for, what it puts forward as this straight line. C.S. Lewis says it like this. How do you know that a line is crooked if you've never seen a straight line? And so what I want to do today, to the best of my ability, is try to show you what the Bible says is the straight line. And by doing that, you'll know that anything else you'll be able to see, is this actually what God is putting forward? So call this distinction. Okay, so back to verse 18, the conversation about the beauty and purpose of marriage begins with this verse. It's not good that man should be alone. And God recognizes this. Or better put, God acknowledges this. Now, why does God say this? He's not saying it for himself. He's saying it for you. Why is he saying this for you? He's saying this for you because God wants you to see something wonderful about marriage. He wants you to see something wonderful about marriage that you can only see if you recognize that man is only half of the story. This is distinction, okay? Now, God knows this, but at this point in the story, Adam does not know this. And so this is where we move on from distinction now to discovery. Let's talk about discovery. It says this in verse 19, how does God reveal this to Adam? He does it like this. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Like this is like the greatest zoology experience of your entire life, right? Instead of paying $20 to go to a zoo, God literally brings every animal and says, hey buddy, what do you want to name this one, right? It's like going to the zoo, and you know they have those little plaques right before the exhibit, and it's like the name of whatever the creature is, it's Latin thing, and then all about it, right? Imagine if the name was blank, and then he hands you a Sharpie and goes, what do you want that one to be, right? Snake, right? Whatever. I don't know. And so um, whatever it is, it's just the coolest thing. But 
There's three things that, that are, I think, probably maybe more, but three things I want you to see that Adam discovers and we discover in the midst of this, uh, these few verses. The first is this. We see a partnership with man and God in what God calls dominion. And it's a massively important word that means to subdue and to rule, okay? It's the purpose or part of the purpose of what God has given man to do, and the world is his blank canvas to practice it in, okay? Uh, a guy named Char uh, Mark Chansky puts it this way. A man of dominion seeks to boldly subdue and rule over the circumstances of his, of his life instead of passively permitting the circumstance of his life to subdue and rule over him. He dominates his environment instead of letting his environment dominate him. This is what is going on here. Now, because we live in a post-sin world, you hear that and go, dominate. That sounds terrible. That's actually the problem with the world is male domination. But here's the thing. Adam doesn't live in your world. Adam lives in an innocent world where this right here is a beautiful partnership with him and God to cultivate the world. You may not know this, but he was in the east of Eden and his job was to cultivate the land, to bear fruit and see this thing multiply out, okay? That was what God was calling him to do. It's a brilliant picture, okay, of purpose that God has given us. It's awesome. And it's so much different than the rest of the world religions. It's a partnership of God with man. It's not man serving God and trying to sacrifice to him and try to, like, like, these, like under his foot. It's no God standing with man, trying to cultivate and bring life and flourishing. Now imagine, that's a massive job to do. One man, whole planet, right? We've got seven billion people on the planet and we're still not able to maximize the, the potential of this world. So... It leads us to second thing. God reveals a distinction between Adam and the animals. God is not presenting Adam to the world. He's presenting the world to Adam. There's a distinction between him and the rest of creation, right? Which is an extension of what we read. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, who is, what is different about man? We're created in whose image? God's image. We are different than the world. He is exercising this dominion over the world, but he's doing it alone. And this is what leads us to the third thing. The third thing that we see is not what Adam actually sees, it's what he doesn't see. What he doesn't see, we see in verse 20, second half. Look at this. After naming everything, seeing all there is, everything passes away. And he says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Adam is the first man to understand the meaning of Genesis 2.18. In that moment, after naming all the animals and seeing their pairs and partners, Adam probably didn't recognize the absence of his pair. He probably felt it. He probably felt it. I bet you Adam felt and could even say, yes, it is truly not good for man to be alone. Can you, feel, can you see this? Can you feel this? Like Adam's standing there and everything is gone and him standing there and he's looking around and there is no other. It feels like the work is done, but it's not. And so he's looking around and as he's seeing that something's missing. He's not angry, he's just alone. And God acknowledged it and now Adam recognizes it. And once Adam recognizes that he is alone, we see 
that the light goes out. The lights go out for him. And we get delivery. All right? Delivery. Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The imagery right here is beautiful. I can't think of a better word. It's just beautiful. It's marvelous. It's wonderful. I mean, think about it. Like, like a child, God takes Adam and just puts him into a deep sleep. And puts him into a sleep. And while he's asleep, like a surgeon, opens him up and takes a piece of this man. And from that piece then creates his perfect counterpart to go with him. It's a perfect counterpart. And it was so good, apparently, that Adam, when he sees her, busts out into song. Right? He sees her, and instantly song comes. He's like, this is marvelous. Look what he says, verse 23. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, I'm going to say it's not a good song. Okay? Probably wouldn't be a, you know, top on the billboard charts. But I tell you what, it still hits. He is essentially saying the exact same thing that Tom Cruise says to Jerry Maguire. You complete me. Right? He's Caesar. You and me. Right? And she has no choice. This is the only guy. She gets that guy who writes songs like that. <laughs> oh, man. Proverbs 18.22. You've heard me read this before. It says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. I think I want, I, we've got to recognize God's brilliance in the midst of this. How God takes Adam, who is ignorant to this fact, and brings him to a place where he recognizes the need and he provides this beautiful counterpart who matches and fits with him physically, emotionally, intellectually. They go together. And it's a beautiful picture. And this is what gets us finally to definition. What is marriage? Here's the definition. This is where you go. Genesis 2, 24 and 25. Memorize this. If you're married, memorize it by tomorrow. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right? Marriage, simply put, marriage is a joining together of a man and a woman, as biblically described, a man and a woman for life. Two distinct humans created in the image of God, Genesis 127, who are united under God, Matthew 19, 6, what God has brought together and who are equal before God, 1 Corinthians 11. The best way to understand marriage between men and women is with the same words that I use to describe the Trinity, which is unity, equality, and distinction. All right, let me tell you why. Unity, there is uh, you, these two people, when we come together in marriage, there is unity with both of them for the purpose of what? Practicing dominion alongside God in the earth. They've got a purpose. Purpose is not sex. Purpose is not a combined income. Okay? The purpose is to practice dominion alongside God, to bring life and flourishing to the world with the Lord. Now, they're also equal in value. Did you know that men and women are equal in value? Did you know that? 
It's true. The Bible says it. Man is not more important than woman, and woman is not more important than man. We talked about this in 1 Corinthians 11. This is what Paul says. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. There's not a single man who can say, I got here without the help of any women. I'm like, you have a mom, right? No, we are equal in our value and dignity before the Lord. There's an order to creation. You know, I know this. There's an order to creation which has a bearing on the roles that men and women play, but has no bearing on the valuation of men and women in that marriage. Which then takes us to the final thing, is that we are lastly distinct. We're different. Ask a five-year-old, are boys and girls different? And they'll be, oh yeah. Right? We're different. Physically, it's obvious that we're different. Okay? Physically, it's obvious. Emotionally, I think it's still obvious, though with some, variety, some variations going on. I don't know if it's a result of sin or what. But then our, in our, um, there are also, uh, we're distinct in our roles within marriage. Now, this has been blurred due to sin and distortion and things that have come about. But my goal, again, my goal this morning is not to solve the role issue within marriage, but to define to you what marriage is. Okay. So what you got to understand is God, here's the thing you need to really pay attention to, and it's fairly simple. God did not create another dude to come and help Adam partner. It's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, right? They're not, he didn't, he didn't say, hey, you need another muscle. You need some more help, you know, moving these cows and doing these things. He did not give him another guy. That's not what God did. What God did was to bring somebody who was a little bit different. And that little bit different makes all the difference. Because these two human beings are called to come together in a way that is far more powerful, far more beautiful, and far more practical to the work of dominion than having another guy along his side. And through this partnership, more humans are created with it exponentially increases their ability to rule over the blank canvas, which is the world. As more images increase, so does the fruitful work of dominion. Now you go, hold on a second. Isn't Adam working with God? Right? Can you imagine, like, you're, you're moving cows and doing all that, and on the horse next to you is God. You're like, do what, you really need another woman to help you out? Do you need anybody else to help you out? Look, maybe God is enough, and I think God could be enough, but that's not God's plan. God's plan was this. Two human beings, a woman and a man, called to come together to bring life and flourishing, and through them comes humanity. And humanity now is partnered with God to bring life and flourishing to the world. That's the purpose of marriage. To partner with God, cultivating the world, making this place amazing, and filling it with more people who do the same thing. Sounds great. Anybody agree? Sounds wonderful. Except where we've got a problem, and it's in the downfall. So now it's the last point. It's a downfall. And I want you to go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Right after talking about this beautiful thing of bringing men and women together, we get downfall. It says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that is in the garden, or is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, 
Number one, we need to pause. Because at this point, you should be asking yourselves, where is the guy? Where's Adam? What in the world is Adam doing? Where is he at? Right? Why is Adam not speaking up in this story? Does anybody wonder? Creation is now at work practicing dominion over Eve, manipulating his wife, standing right there, and she's trying to, he's trying to manipulate her, practice dominion over her, and get her to go against what God has practiced. Now, she says, hey, we're not allowed to eat it. We're not even allowed to touch it. Does God ever say not to touch it? No. He never says not to touch it. Eve goes beyond what the word of God says, whether Adam told her that or not, which I can kind of imagine, right, like talking to Eve, like, hey, we're not supposed to eat of this. You know what? Just don't even go near it. Don't touch it, right? And so she says, you know, don't touch it. And when you go beyond the word of God, it can lead to problems. And I don't know, this is not in the text, but you can even imagine when Satan is saying, listen, he didn't say that, that the snake is even like touching it himself. Not with his hands, he's a snake. But going around and saying, look, I'm not dying. And what does it do? It leaves a question about the integrity and the goodness of God. And what is Adam doing? Nothing. Now, remember what I said or what Mark Chansky said, he said, a man of dominion seeks to boldly subdue and rule over the circumstances of his life instead of, passi- uh, instead of passively permitting the circumstances of his life to subdue and rule over him. But passivity is exactly what is going on here. Adam is not taking his active role to go, no, you, snake, are wrong. And you will take that and you will get away from her. He doesn't do it. And so what happens is he leaves his wife vulnerable to this. And it says in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, and the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard... The sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now that's a big section and I'm going to intentionally skip a few things because I want to keep us focused on one specific thing that I think is massively important for this whole story. And it's this, that when God created Adam and Eve, he created them innocently, which means he created them without sin. We even see that they're naked and unashamed. They have nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing to be ashamed of. But with the one step of doubting the goodness of God and now reaching out and taking and eating something God had not commanded them to do, shame enters into the world. Death enters into the world. And instantly they know they're naked. And I want to say that I, with confidence, I believe this is one of the greatest pinpoint this is one of the greatest problems we have in our marriages and in every relationship is that we walk in shame. What do they do instantly after they realize they're naked? They seek to cover themselves up. When God comes into the garden, what do they do? They hide themselves from God. Their conscience, Romans 2, 14 and 15, tells us like our conscience bears witness that we have sinned, we've done something wrong, and so they try to hide in that. And now we as a humanity, we do this all the time. I don't care if you're the toughest guy in the room. Shame now dominates and has dominion over us. And our marriages and our relationships are ruled by shame. It's the reason why we cover up. We cover up with either our masculinity, strength, beauty, our finances, and how much money we make. 
all kinds of metrics. We try to protect ourselves from others and hide ourselves from others through gossip, right? Isolation. And we try to move people away and it makes it so hard to be loved and really love people. And everybody in this room, you want to be loved. Everyone in this room wants to be loved. But that you doubt that you could be loved. And what it does is it manipulates your brain and it warps you into thinking the less of others and protecting yourself, even at the expense of others. And man, this is showcased the most in marriage because you're forced to be right next to each other. Like all the time. And she was pretty and her hair flowed and the sun was always somehow behind her blonde hair and it was great. But then she's got with you and her hair's on the inside of the shower. And right, and she's like, she's like snores and she does weird things and she can be mean, right, and unkind. You have to bring it to your community and say, guys, help me. She's crazy. Whatever the case may be, right? But it gets in the way. And I'm being funny, but the reality is most of what I deal with when I'm working with people and helping each other it's usually not rooted in marriage problems. It's rooted in single people problems that we bring to our marriage. And ultimately, it's not shame that's the greatest problem in our marriages. The ultimate problem that we have, the greatest downfall, is we doubt God. And it's the reason, guys, that a lot of us have experienced divorce and problems is we decided, you know what, we got to do it our way. We're going to do it our way. And I've, I'm guilty, extremely guilty. And I doubted God and I don't trust God and my wife pays for that. And I paid for that because of my wife's doubt and trust in God. All of us have. And because of what happens here in the garden, shame coming in and we feel it, the consequence of our inability to trust the Lord, a curse comes on the world. Look at what he says. Here comes the curse that God tells for us. He says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pains in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And look at this. This is like a sentence that describes just the conflict we have as men and women. It says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And this rule is not a good rule. A few chapters later you read, men are ruling over women in a way that God did not intend. That's not the way God intended it. But look what happens with Adam. He says this to Adam. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the day of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. And look at what he says next. The death sentence. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death comes back. What we were meant to do as a people coming together to bring life and flourishing and cultivating life and just uh, with God, instead of life, now what we get is thorn world, place of thorn and thistles, place that wants to fight back and resist the dominion because of our passivity and our distrust in the Lord. And his, and his ability to care for us. We think God wants to rip us off now. And that shame now dominates us. Instead of being people who are practicing dominion, we're dominated. Some of you, you're in this room, you're dominated by your shame. But I want to tell you, you don't have to doubt the goodness of God. Because you know there's another time where we see the word thorns in the Bible, you know where it is? It's in the gospel. The thorns dominated, and we were dominated by shame, we're dominated by this world that fights back. Death now rules, but then eventually God sends a king, and that king puts on a crown of thorns and says, I will now dominate sin. I will put to death your shame. And he does it by dying on a cross for each and every one of us. 
And he does that to redeem us and to restore what we lost because of sin. And when he does that, he introduces a new marriage in the most beautiful picture of marriage that we could ever see, a marriage between a sacrificial God and the people of God, the church. And he even tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that we are called now to be men and women who model our marriages and our life after the sacrificial work of Jesus, the gospel, the king of thorn world, the God who's coming again to restore this world back to what it was intended to be. Did you know that? And we need to understand that. Why do we need to understand that? Because we're going to go into talking about divorce next week, and then we're going to talk about remarriage the week after that. And the reason why we do is because sin still reigns. And we need to believe that God is truly good and that God can take what you have going wrong in your life, the shame and the brokenness, and he can redeem it. You're in places right now, and some of you in your marriage, where you think there's no way it's going to make it. And I'm telling you, if you have faith in what God can do and you surrender your life to him, I guarantee you, you could do far more abundantly than you can ever ask or imagine. There are people in this room right now who have a better marriage than they've ever had, and they've been through horrors in their marriage. Loss of children, adultery. All the reasons that 90% of marriages end in America, we've got people in this room who are still married, and they have victory over those sins and the brokenness, not because they're so awesome, but because God is, and they trust in that king. And they said, you know what? When I chose to go my way, it led to sin and destruction and shame and hiding. But when I choose to go God's way, he brings redemption. He restores what the locusts have taken away. Guys, I want to be a church. The reason why we're doing this series is not because we want to be controversial. We want to go to what the Word of God says because some of you are in your marriages and I want you to know that marriage can be amazing and life-giving and flourishing and bring so much to the church, but only if we trust God with it. And some of you are in the midst of marriage and you're thinking it's not going to make it. And I want to tell you, God can restore and give you a better marriage than you ever dreamed of, but you've got to do the same thing a person who's not married, about to get married, has to do, which is trust him. And seek first his faith and his kingdom. And I also want to do a final thing. And let me just say this to you. You've got to know this. As guys, if you've had a divorce, you are divorced, whatever the case may be, man, God's grace covers that. It's not your identity as in a divorced person. It's not your identity. Man, my parents have been through divorces. My grandma has been through five different marriages. Her identity is not divorce. Your identity is in Jesus. Do you understand that? And we at Outpost are not trying to lay something on you, but we are trying to say something. It's not meant to be that way. And I think you know because of the pain of it, it wasn't supposed to be that way. And hey, we're with you. If your marriage is in turmoil, you're, you need help. Do not wait until papers are on the table. Okay, long before that, ask for help. We are a church of people who are sinners and broken and struggle to trust God. And all of our marriages need work. They need work. But praise God, we have a God who wants to work on us and help us and sanctify us day by day. But guys, let's seek first his kingdom together in our marriages. Okay? So what is marriage about? Marriage is a man and a woman called to be together, right? Brought together by God to becoming one, to bring life and flourishing. In Genesis, it's to bring dominion, to cultivate the garden and bring life. In the New Testament, you know what we get? Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Together we do it to make disciples, make children in the faith. And we do that best when we do that together.
So let's do that together, trusting in God. Father, thank you so much. Uh, Lord, for giving us women who are beautiful and wonderful and who are like us, but yet are our complement, who make us better than we could have ever imagined. And God, thank you for men who you've designed in a specific way to lead into love and to God. But God, forgive us. We are sinners. We are like Adam. We're passive. We're dominant in the wrong ways. And we don't trust you. And God, I just want to ask for your forgiveness for that and the ways in my life that I've done exactly that, not trusted you and led my family and protected my wife from the lies of the enemy. God, we confess there's a lot of us in the room. We've got sin in the midst of our marriage. And I pray that you would remind us of your grace at the cross. And at the brokenness of the first marriage, we've brought thorns. You took the thorns to the grave. You put them to death. I don't just pray that people... I pray, that, I pray, God, that you would heal some marriages in this room, that this would be the first time in their, their years together they realize that there could be hope, that they can run together, there can be healing. But I pray that by your spirit you would help them see that it starts with them in their own circle, trusting you. I pray for those who are single in the room who want to be married, that they would see the importance of marriage, what it really is about, to take it seriously as men and women not seeking to find their hope and their healing in a spouse, but they would find all their hope and healing in you. And then, by your grace, you would bring them a spouse. Help us, Lord. We need your help. But may you be glorified, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.